Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Garth Davis is one of the leading voices when it comes to plant-based nutrition. He's the medical director of weight management at Mission Hospital in Asheville, North Carolina, and the best-selling author of Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. So suffice to say, Garth has a very strong opinion on protein, which we're going to discuss today, as well as my personal favorite, the power of great sourdough bread. Garth, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, man. It is crazy times. I know, crazy times indeed. It is so great to have you. It's been long overdue. And so one of the things that's so great about you is so many people in our space, you have an incredible personal health transformation that led you down this path. So let's start there. Yeah. Um, and funny enough, I just got a CT calcium score of my heart, which was a really important test for me right now. And uh, it's fitting because I started off in medicine. My father was a doctor, got into medicine. I never thought about holistic health type things. In fact, I, I was, I'm a weight loss surgeon as part of my job. And I would go to these weight loss surgery conferences. Can you imagine this? It's a surgery conference designed around obesity. We never talk about food. No discussion. Isn't that crazy? Like now it's crazy to me. Back then it wasn't. I didn't. The funny thing is it's, it's hard to explain. But when you're when you brought up in a Western medicine mindset, you don't think about food and supplements. And it just people are diseased. It's almost like you're born broken and it's our job to fix it. And that's all. That's what you think. And I had that mindset. But when I was about 35, I got married and decided I finally had to go and get a life insurance policy. And true to any doctor surgeon, we had the God complex where nothing could possibly happen to us. But in order to get my life insurance, I never been to a doctor, but in order to get a life insurance policy test, I had to go and get all these tests done. And they called me up and like, sorry, we can't offer you the life insurance policy you wanted. I'm like, what? They're like, well, you've got sky high cholesterol you're hypertensive and you got fatty liver. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. Now I didn't look great. I didn't particularly feel great, but I just thought that was the life of a surgeon. I was, I was still exercising. I'm still go to the gym. I ate what I thought was a somewhat healthy diet. But when I was a resident, we got, there was a Wendy's in the hospital. Again, the irony of it all. And we got these little Wendy's dollars when we worked. So we got free Wendy's and I would leave off the bun so because, of course, it's the bun causing the problem, not the burger. And uh, I thought I was healthy. And then I found out I wasn't. I go and see my buddy and he's, oh, yeah, these are not good numbers. But look, no problem. We'll, we'll put you on a statin. Keep in mind, I'm 35. We'll put you on a beta blocker. We'll do this. We'll do. And I'm like, oh, my God, I know where this leads. I know this leads to my pay. Like we had to add on to our history and physical med list. We had to add another page because people were filling up the page with their medicines and went on to another. I knew that was, you know, I was 35 when I'm. 50, it's going to be even more and more. And so I started really getting interested at that point as to why is this happening? I mean, is this something unique to humanity or is this something unique to America? And as I found out more, it was somewhat unique to America or more accurately put to Westernization, to Westernized diets. And as I started studying more and really started changing my diets, I saw, you know, amazing changes. And so I just got my calcium score back and it's a zero. Not one drop of calcium. And that was with a, I had a LDL score of 190 um, during that test. So that's pretty darn high. So to have a calcium score of zero 15 years later, I'm pretty proud of that. 
So explain to people what a calcium score is. Let's start there it's, and you know why yeah. it's important who should get it also. Yeah, I really like the calcium score because um, so there, there's a question, you know, when should you start taking a statin? So the other thing I do want to say is that while I obviously believe a lot in holistic medicine, I also understand that there is a place for Western medicine. And so my thought process going into this calcium scan is if I've got so what it is, is a CT scan of your heart. And uh, it's basically looking for any calcium deposits in your heart. Now, we know from autopsy studies of kids that we start developing atheromas, like the beginning of calcification of the vessels earlier. And it will slowly, uh, we could go into the science of it, but the calcium score correlates pretty well with your risk of getting uh, heart disease, heart problems. It is heart disease, so heart problems in the future. And so I like it because if, if you got a calcium scan of zero, you don't need to do a statin. You just don't. But if your calcium, you have any calcium, actually, there's a recent study showed if you have any calcium score, then probably a statin may be preventative for heart attacks in the long term. Wow. So is it like, give us a sense of zero is obviously zero. Like, how high does the score go? Does it go to 10, 100? Oh, it could go 50. to uh, 250. I can't wow. remember what the upper level but um, But it, it, they do percentiles based on age. And for my age, I'm the top, like point, like I'm the top zero. Most everybody's got some calcium in it, which which is interesting because that's why one of these studies went to look and they said, what if you have some calcium but not a lot? Uh, would a statin prolong life? And the study showed that it would. I mean, it's a small effect because there's obviously many other effects that you have to look at, but the statin did uh, prolong life in that situation. Got it. So so let's talk about what you did to get that great score. So you go in, they say, here you got to do all this work because you're not looking so good at age 35, and, and you made some pretty significant shifts in terms of your, your diet. So how, what did you do? Well, I mean, at that point, to me, and the only vegetables I ever got in my diet were were basically whatever showed up on my hamburger. I really never ate vegetables and fruits. It just never like I, I ate what I see all my patients eating. It was eggs and bacon for breakfast. Uh, there was some kind of like a hamburger or something for lunch. Again, no bun. And then dinner was steak or, you know, chicken or something like that. So it was a animal protein based diet. And the more I started studying this, because I thought protein was going to give me muscles. I always wanted the muscles. That's what I wanted. I never got them, but I kept I kept eating that way, thinking I was going to get them because it was high protein. And the more I started doing the research on it, the more I was shocked as to the fact that, first of all, it doesn't necessarily give you muscles. And secondarily, this idea that high protein diets are what we should be eating tends to be completely wrong. I started looking at things like the blue zones parts of the world where people had these tremendously long, healthy lives. I really started getting into their data. So people think of the blue zones, they think of Dan's book and everything, but but it goes far beyond that. There's been some really good epidemiology looking at their stuff, looking at trials like the PREDIMED trial, looking at the Adventist health studies, at the EPIC data study, really looking at long-term epidemiology and population studies. And then Taking that science, the, the big mistake people make is just looking at one. Yeah, you know, I always see, oh, this article came out, therefore, it doesn't work like that. You really need to have a breadth of knowledge of science, and it can't just be epidemiology. For instance, I found there was an epidemiology showing that the Japanese have less prostate cancer than Americans. But you can't say that's because of diet. It could be they don't test it as much. It could be genetics. But then you look at studies where Japanese men move to America and they get prostate cancer. Okay, that's a little bit more. Then the Harvard study did a pretty big study looking at, at the Harvard Health study, looking at 
who got prostate cancer, and it was a strong correlation with dairy, and they felt that this was because of the increase in IGF-1. And then there's a randomized control trial that took people with a high PSA and put them on a plant-based diet with no uh, dairy, and they did decrease their PSA with that diet. So it takes that kind of scientific revelation, and that's what I went through, to realize I need to eat more plants, and I need to eat a lot less meat. And so essentially, did you go 100% plant-based? I'm curious. Yeah, no, I, I went basically mainly pescatarian because when you look at the trials, pescatarians really have the healthiest life. If you're looking at any long-term study, I, I worry that the future is not going to be like that. So I went pescatarian for a while and I'm pretty fanatical about testing myself. Like I don't want to tell my patients to do anything I don't do myself and, and test it myself. And I like to practice uh, what I preach. And I found my my mercury level went sky high on a pescatarian diet. I mean, sky high. I went to 18. So I called the company that did the test. I went to this Genova place to get the test. I was like, well, what is a normal mercury score? And they're like, well, I mean, zero. And I was like, oh, oh damn. And so, you know, with our, our, our seas are polluted now and things like that. But no, my, we have to, I think it's probably important to differentiate two parts of me. One part is a predominantly plant-based diet for health a diet that's high in fiber, a, a diet that is not high in protein, not that it avoids protein, but high in, not high in protein. The vegan is a different story. Me being vegan doesn't have anything to do necessarily with health. Vegan has more to do with ethics because once I did, once I started going plant-based, which was solely for health, you start reading things like, where's my food coming from? How am I getting it? The more I read about those things, I was and looking at a little bit in depth and kind of taking the blinders off because believe me in this country and in this world we have some blinders on about where our food comes from and uh because you know i went through the whole oh i'm eating grass-fed meat therefore it's so much better yeah find out it's, it's not that much better and, and the conditions are just as bad and so the veganism is a ethic and a and kind of a concern for the environment which that i go to all these conferences and food and environment become a very big deal. And I started hearing a lot of lectures about environment, started looking into environment, and that really moved me towards a vegan diet. So in terms of diet, because vegan's not for everyone, and it can be overwhelming, and, and some people need, need, whether it's omegas with salmon, or you go back to a pescatarian point of view, Mediterranean, if you will, is that, what have you learned in terms of what you see with patients in terms of blue zones, you mentioned Dan, I love Dan, I love blue zones, like in terms of, and I know it's hard to generalize, but if you had to generalize for the population, what is your food philosophy that is probably gonna do right by most people? Is it the Mediterranean diet, pescatarian? So there was a funny study on the Mediterranean diet because they were, they were looking at the, the Predimed study and the Lyon study and some different Mediterranean diet studies. And when they really focused in on those Mediterranean diets, it, it really is the plants. I mean, you got to really focus down on the plants. You look at these blue zones, they're not vegan, except for the vegans in, in, in Linda. They all eat some fish or some meat. But when you look at their diet, it's so, you look at the American diet. So if you look at the RDA for protein, we're all, 99% of the population is getting the RDA for protein. 3% is getting the RDA for fiber. That to me is this big problem. We are not getting enough fiber and we're getting way too much protein. And it's that kind of, that's the scenario where I see us being so far off. I, I don't know, I, I get hesitant to call it the Mediterranean diet because there's no defined Mediterranean diet. Um, Mediterranean diet's diet that 
Caribbean fruits and vegetables. I think people hear Mediterranean diet and they think it's olive oil and wine. <laughs> Sign and, me up. I'm in. <laughs> yeah, it's olive oil, wine and fish. That's what everybody thinks it is. I saw a, a Mayo Clinic release about the Mediterranean diet and they were recommending chicken. Chicken's not a part of the Mediterranean diet. And so it, it's the, the, the people get that off. And, and I don't know that it has to be Mediterranean. So the Sardinian diet is fantastic. And the Sardinian diet traditional sardinian diet obviously it's changing now over the years but traditional sardinian diet heavy in sweet potatoes heavy in rice heavy in soybean heavy in fruits and vegetables that's not a mediterranean diet very healthy you could look at the coin peninsula costa rica it's black beans and squash and maize it's not a mediterranean diet it's very healthy so it's hard to say one diet again i think it's a diet that's heavy in vegetables fruits Heavy in starches too. The other thing that's so interesting. Ooh, starches! Now I, you know. Oh my, starches are huge. Sourdough, important. bring it on, Garth. I just ate like almost half of a sourdough uh, loaf before I talked to you, because yeah, I mean, what I see a lot of people go plant based, right? And they get so, oh my God, I'm going to eat nothing but salad. I would die if I was eating nothing but salad. But these people go on these like crazy diets. I'm, I'm going to eat nothing but salad. I'm eating nothing but fruit. There's these guys that do fruititarian diets. and I, Fruit more than salad. I mean, a fruit's going to get you enough calories. But these salads, they're so calorie deficient that uh, they're people just eating greens. Then they're hungry. They don't feel great. They don't have energy. Because energy comes in these great complex carbohydrates. That's really where you get. And the other thing is we talk about needing high fiber. It's going to be very hard for someone to get fiber from fruits and vegetables alone. There's just not enough. And you're going to get full before you get enough fiber. But the grains and the starches are where you get great sources of fiber that really give you energy. So a lot of the athletes, we're really, I carve it up, man. I really do a lot of the, and that's that. And, and there's such a mistake. So I see this so much, right? When I sit down with patients, there's, it's amazing to me the kind of how it's almost like the social media kind of nonsense that you hear and the misinformation really does spill off into the population where they start believing things like carbs cause you to be fat. Carbs do not cause you to be fat. Your body can't turn carbs to fat. In order for your body to turn carbs to fat, it's called de novo lipogenesis. You have to have completely saturated all of your glycogen stores and then eaten even above that and in overfeeding trials, it ends up only about 2 to 3% of carbs are turned to fat. It's just, it doesn't happen. Carbs don't turn to fat. So what is, you know, you're talking about obesity. What, what are we getting so wrong there? If carbs don't, what's creating the obesity epidemic? Is it the Western diet, heavily processed food, oil, sugar, French fries? All- what is it? Yeah. So we got to realize that there's no silver bullet. I mean, that's the first thing I, I want to shake people because everybody, especially scientists, I know so many obesity scientists, right? Everybody is so laser focused on their area. I had one uh, scientist who was a really uh, famous scientist coming to see me for weight loss and he was going to get weight loss surgery eventually. And he was like, I've got the solution. I haven't proved it. I'm going to turn white fat to brown fat. And I've got the solution. And when I release it, I'm going to put you out of business. But before then, please do surgery on me. Uh, Sadly enough, he died of a heart attack before he ever got to the operating room table. And all his research was gone. But I, I noticed in him, and I noticed in so many of my friends, this laser focus that it's just one thing. If I could just get this one thing, if it, it's just protein, or it's just carbs, or it's just fat, or it's just... It, it, that's not the answer, all right? There's no, we've tried all these different medications. I remember once uh, this medication came out, Ramonabon, 
And everybody was like, this is going to kill weight loss surgery. This is the drug. And we were all pretty excited about the drug. It, it blocked the uh, endocannabinoid system. So basically, like they saw people that smoke pot get hungry. So there must be something there. What if we block that receptor? And in fact, it did work pretty well, not perfectly. But the sad thing is, not only did it take away your will to eat, it also took away your will to live. Uh, and so people were killing themselves on it. So that got taken off. But that's the problem, right? We keep getting isolated. It's this hormone. It's that. That's not the case. What we got to understand is that we evolved thousands and thousands of years ago. And evolution and natural selection, they don't care about the things you and I care about. They don't care. Natural selection doesn't care about us growing up and seeing our children grow old and living to 80 and 90. Natural selection cares about you getting to a procreative age and surviving till that time. Then it doesn't care about you anymore. All right. And so what we evolved for natural selection is an ability to eat just about anything. And we have these big, huge, gigantic stomachs so that we could eat a lot because when there was a kill or when there was a harvest or when there was a gathering, we better eat all of it because winter was coming. And we evolved very complex systems to put fat on, very complex. So you could block one system and another system will fire in. For instance, like you see all these people, they, they go on diets and they lose weight in the beginning. But when you're losing weight, your fat cells secrete a hormone called leptin. And leptin goes back to the very most primitive parts of the brain, the most primitive parts, the parts of the brain that control your heart rate and your breathing. It's very primitive. And so when that leptin level starts dropping, too much leptin your brain doesn't care about. Again, it doesn't want to protect you from too much. It wants to protect you from too little. You start losing weight, your leptin level drops, and your brain is going to start firing. And the, the problem is that we think, and we blame obese people, we think this is all a willpower issue. Everybody's trying to willpower themselves out of their weight and their, they, I'm trying to willpower myself not to eat this and that. What they got to understand is this goes beyond willpower. This goes beyond a physiologic drive to eat these foods, especially in obese patients. Um, if you do MRIs of their brain, it looks like a cocaine addict. They've got a deficit of dopamine uh, receptors in their arcuate nucleus. They're, they're leptin insensitive, all these different things. So I think number one to your question would be that we need to start understanding that this is a complex multifactorial disease. It really is a disease. Number two, you take these genes and you put it in, 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 in the perfect environment to kill us. We've got taste scientists that are no what these internal drives are and feed upon those internal drives. They know that we're driven to eat fat and calories and they give us fat and calories. I think the other big problem, of course, is ultra processed foods. I mean, we're eating food with zero, and I mean zero nutritional benefit, at the same time, zero satiety, right? I mean, you eat these foods, you're hungry again a few hours later. I do think, of course, I wrote a whole book on this, that there's way too much emphasis on protein so that we got people drinking protein shakes and uh, eating as much steak and meat as they possibly can. And that leaves them at a deficit of fiber. And what that does is change the microbiome uh, where we're getting these microbiomes that are inflammatory and we're getting insulin resistant because of that. That's a whole nother topic if you want to get into. And so we're eating a food that's inflammatory, that's creating metabolic disease, and that's preying upon these genetics that we have that make us want to eat this stuff. So, so two things I want to touch on. One is 
protein. So you mentioned you literally wrote the book on this. And so in your opinion, how much protein do we need? How does it vary? I'm a 45 year old male, six foot seven. So obviously it's going to be a little different than a 25 year old woman who's five foot three. What are we getting so wrong about protein? And in your estimation, like what do we really need if, if we're going to be healthy, somewhat active, what's enough? I remember as a kid, when I was an athlete, played basketball, it was like, you needed like two grams per pound of body weight or whatever the hell it was. I don't remember, but what's your take? Yeah, interesting. So when people come to my clinic and I'm either, I'm treating them for medical weight loss, you know, just diet, or I'm treating them after surgery or either way, they're always kind of shocked. I never mention the word protein. We don't talk about protein. I never say, I don't, I, I cannot stand, and this, I'm sure people in your audience will go crazy. I cannot stand macronutrients. I hate macronutrients. I hate this idea because food is not macronutrients. Food's got everything in it. I mean, it's got, you're eating beans. What is that? Is that a carb? Is it a protein? Is it, I hate it when people say, oh, carbs are bad for you. And they're referring to pizza, which to me isn't a carb. It's a fat if we're going to go by calorie counts. So I just never talk macronutrients to it. Now, look, protein is important. You absolutely have to get protein in your diet. The good thing is it's so important that it's in just about everything that we eat. And it is very difficult to not get enough protein in the diet. So when they did the RDA testings, and people argue that the RDA wasn't enough, uh, that was based on urine studies. Now people are doing uh, fancy amino acid breakdown studies. But uh, that the, basically the RDA so the RD recommended daily allowance was based on looking at normal curves of protein utilization. And you could tell by basically the urea you make in, in your urine as to whether or not you're utilizing your protein or whether or not you're now protein deficient. And they decided that there was an average amount of protein that people needed. But to be absolutely extra safe, they used two standard deviations above that, meaning they wanted to make sure that no one was going to be protein deficient. And the RDA for a man is 56 grams of protein, and an RDA for women is 46 grams of protein. Not much. And that's the average. So that's not a lot. Now, is that what I would recommend for an Olympic athlete? And the answer is no. There's been some pretty good studies. Depends what you want. Like in the, uh, a lot of the, uh, the bro scientists, I call them. I mean, they're real scientists, but their focus is on creating bros, creating the big muscle guys. And they say, I mean, basically, if you look at the data – probably 1.6 grams per kilogram of lean body weight, not your body weight, but your lean body weight, 1.6 grams per kilogram. And that is like to absolutely optimize your muscle development. Now, the problem is people hear that and everybody's going for that 1.6 grams per kilogram. But I mean, serious, how big does everybody need to be? How important is it to, to get that 1.6 grams per kilogram? The interesting thing to me is that I think there comes... there's two worlds, right? There's one is the bodybuilding, what I would call exercise science. And then the other world is the anti-aging science. Because you're 46, I'm 50. We're not getting an Olympic gold at this point. And sure, we want to look good, but do we really need to max out our bench 10 pounds more than we did last time? The question is, does that 1.6 grams per kilogram come at a cost? If you then switch over to the anti-aging research, it's pretty interesting. Because they started out in anti-aging looking really at calorie restriction. And it really looked like calorie restriction was going to be the answer. If you, do, if you calorie restrict a monkey, it, it clearly is healthier. But when they started looking at that 
even more carefully, they found that it wasn't necessarily the calorie restriction that was important. It was that when we calorie restrict, we also protein restrict. And what they have found is proteins, specifically, interestingly, branched-chain amino acids, stimulate for an IGF-1. These are aging pathways. Now, they're also muscle-building pathways. So if you're a bodybuilder, you want to stimulate IGF-1 and mTOR. You want to live a long, healthy life, you probably don't want to stimulate mTOR and IGF-1. Personally, I want to stimulate mTOR and IGF-1 only after a workout. That That is now my philosophy. That's the only time I want to stimulate. So... So what's the right protein? It depends on what your goals are. I mean, if you're an Olympic swimmer who the difference between gold and not getting on the podium is 0.2 seconds, yeah, optimize, go for the 1.6. But if you're an average 45-year-old guy who's just trying, I mean, I've got, I've never been healthier in my life than I am. I've had how much I wanted six-pack abs when I was 20, when it mattered. <laughs> now I've got a six-pack, i got nothing to do with it except wear suits. I've never been a fitter. I'm running Ironmans. I'm not winning the Ironman, but I'm, I'm I'm doing marathons and things like that. And so you could be extremely healthy on much lower protein uh, would be my point. You don't have to strive for these super high doses. So with that said, what are your favorite plant-based sources of protein? Mm. Well, I, I'm a huge fan of legumes. Um, I mean, you go back to looking at the blue zones. If you look at them, whether it's Okinawa, where they're eating soybean, or whether it's Icaria, where it's uh, cannellini white bean, or Sardinia, where it's lentils, or Nicoyan Peninsula Coast Rica, it's black beans. It's all these different kind of beans, and I think those are an excellent source of protein. Uh, I'm a huge fan of soy and tofu. Much to the, the, I think the dairy industry did a good job making soy sound like it's some kind of dangerous food to eat when it is. Absolutely not. It's It's got a very complete amino acid profile. In fact, I almost worry because it's such a complete amino acid profile. Is it stimulating IGF-1 and mTOR? And the answer is it also stimulates IGF-1 binding protein, so you don't get as much of an IGF-1 effect. But So legumes are very high. I do a lot of seeds, um, so I'll have oatmeal with berries, and I'll put seeds on it, some pumpkin seeds or something like that in my salad. I, I do a handful of nuts every day. So between nuts, seeds, and legumes, I'm getting plenty. Plus oats have it, grains have uh, protein in it. My sourdough bread I just ate has protein. I will, I'm not a big fan of processed foods and supplements, but I do find there are certain areas, like after a hard workout, I just do not feel like eating. And I will have a smoothie where I put a protein powder in there. Not all the time, from time to time. So you mentioned calorie restriction earlier. What's your take on intermittent fasting as one a vehicle to for weight loss and also a vehicle for longevity? Yeah, it's you know, intermittent fasting is really it's it's getting its heyday and it's got some really interesting things. And I've been following it really closely. We've had some great talks about it at our national meetings. Not for everybody. Not everybody can do it. I find it helpful in my patients. I don't. I think in the end. It is a calorie restriction model. In other words, I think if you if you don't eat till twelve and you finish eating at six, you've taken off a lot of time where you would be eating otherwise. So yeah, you lose weight, but it's not some kind of miracle effect. It's just that you've got less time to eat, uh, and so you're not eating as much. You're getting full earlier. Um, I find it helpful in my patients because it brings. I, I don't call it t- um, intermittent fasting. With this. So again, if we're going to talk intermittent fasting, we have to define what that is. 
because there's different ideas. Is it a 5.2 model? Is it a, a 16.8 model? Is it a fat, prolonged fast type model? To me, what I practice and what I practice with my patients is time-restricted eating. That's probably a better idea because it's not a true fast. I try to get my patients never to eat when they're not hungry. We get we eat too much in general as a population. We just we don't need these many cal this many calories. So I try to get them to be aware of that fact. So most people are not that hungry in the morning. So they wake up, have a cup of coffee. Typically, we don't do uh, breakfast until 10 a.m. and then lunch at one, snack at three dinner at six or seven. And I find that helps people stop grazing, which is this constant, oh, I'm going to eat a little bit here. I'm going to eat a little bit there. I have them at very defined times and the fast overnight. Now, do I think that fast overnight does all these miraculous things like the stimulate autophagy and things like that? No. When we start looking at the longevity work, like the work of Longo and people like that, you need more of a stress to the body to get that. And so that's more of these longer fasts. And so the, the I mean, the research is interesting. We don't have any long-term research. Most It's happening I mean, right of, now. We're doing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, we, the, looking at what happens to a yeast molecule when you, when you fast it or a rodent just isn't always applicable. And yeah, I mean, Longo's done some studies with, and I do, believe it or not, he doesn't pay me nothing. I'm just saying I do use his prolonged fast twice a year. I will do that fast. I I think it may have some benefits to it. Just I think saunas have benefits to it. The This kind of stressing. I, I think stressing the body, high intensity interval trainings, a little bit of fasting. Uh, I think that has a benefit to the body, but do we know that long term? We don't. When you look at these blue zones, they're not stressing themselves. The question is, can we do even better than the blue zones. I mean, can I mean the blue zones aren't concentrating on living longer. Could we even live? I mean, David Sinclair now saying we should be able to live to 120. Can we live to 120? Interesting concept. I don't know. The way the world is right now, I'm not sure I even want to live to 120. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, it, it's uh, funny. The the stressing, the short stressors of the body seems to be a common theme with everyone I speak with, whether it's some form of time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting or saunas or the cold shower or the high-intensity interval workout. It's like these short stressors seems to be a common theme. Also, mTOR, you mentioned, like that comes up a lot. The other thing I have to mention, you, you talk about Longo and do we, this question of do we really know We've had him on the podcast and, and I was joking with him about avocado consumption through the roof. That's a great thing. We all, everyone can agree avocados are amazing. And he was like, actually, we don't know that. We've never had such a, a, people consume as many avocados as we do right now. So I, I actually don't know if that's the case. And I was like, oh my God, I feel like you just told me that there's no Santa Claus. We're in a world, especially you, like I loved, I go to so many conferences. I've never loved a conference more than I loved yours. It was really fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I'm not joking. I, I, it was such a, because there were so many interesting people with interesting ideas there. But when you really, this bio, and I don't know if you remember, but I was on a panel. Dave. Dave Asprey, yeah, Dave Asprey. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah. I went to Dave a bit, but uh, as I'm prone to do. But uh, 
but we were talking about biohacking and the biohacking is really interesting. I mean, this idea of, can we hack our bodies? Can we do better? But the science behind biohacking is way behind what you think it would be when you look at, at, at what happens on social media. I mean, everybody's into biohacking. Everybody's doing all this stuff and the science behind it is minuscule and it's very theoretical more than anything. I mean, Longo and Sinclair, their stuff is very theoretical. I mean, we're basing, they're, they're going right down to genetic, like, sirtuins. And, but, but they're, and I see this a lot in scientists. No offense to them. I think these guys are brilliant. But I see it a lot in science. I, I have it a little bit different because I get to go and see what happens in real life in patients, which is very different than I see in scientists and very different than I see in the social media uh, influencer world where they're like, the influencers are like, oh, you've got to fast, you got to do this. But they're never actually treating a patient, following them long-term. Uh, oh, they're like, oh, I treat patients. No, listen. Looking at I've their blood a, work. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I get their blood work. I, I judge myself based on how they do five years later. I don't care what they do over the next few weeks. It's what, how are they going to be five years from now? So I get to see it really applied. And what I see a lot is um, missing the forest for the trees. Like so focused on sirtuins and so focused on cyclic AMP and the and these kind of things are theoretically interesting. But what I have found in medicine is that theoretical interests don't always play themselves out in a complex human organism. So I love that, and I'll and I'll segue to you talked about biohacking, and it seems like we're biohacking burgers right now with the explosion of you know the Beyond Burger, the Impossible Burger. They're fun, they're tasty, but are they really healthy? And just What's your take on the explosion of the the faux burgers, if you will? Yeah, funny enough, mixed feelings. There was actually a trial that just came out. I want to say it's called the Replace It trial. I think it was called the Replace It out of Stanford, where they did do that. They they substituted, I think it was a Beyond Burger for a regular burger. It does decrease the amount of fats, saturated fat, decreases your cholesterol. It is healthier than a burger. There's a few reasons. Saturated fat is decreased in a Beyond Burger. You are gonna get less IGF-1 stimulation like we were talking about. You're gonna let get less heme iron, which is oxidizing. Uh, I could go through all these lists. So I think it's a better choice uh, from a health standpoint. We'll get to the other. But it's so highly I processed. Uh, yeah, Canola uh, oil is like the second ingredient. Yeah, I know it is highly processed and, and people are going to start talking about oxidized oils and it is a worry. But uh, but again, I think in that replacement trial, they showed again a re reduction in oxidized LDL. I think they were even looking at I, I have to look to be sure it just came out, but it is highly processed. And my worry is like when I started going plant based, there was really no temptations. I was eating a bowl of rice and beans with some vegetables in it. Right. There was no I didn't have a lot of choices. Now I could go and get, I had a, a big, huge vegan pizza the other night and I felt like crap afterwards because it was still junk food in the end. And my worry is that veganism, well, let's not use the term veganism because that's an ethical term, but plant-based eating becomes equated with uh, this junk food eating and we don't see an improvement in health. Because if there is an improvement, it's minusculely small. Right. I don't want people eating a Beyond Burger. I want them eating a big bowl. But at the same time... Or have a black bean like, burger. Black beans. It's like, black back, before fine. all this, like black bean burger. Yeah. Yeah, and I still do that. I mean, w my wife and I were complaining because we live in Asheville where there's... We used to go to, you know, the breweries and there was always... They made their own plant-based burger in-house. And you could, you're eating it, you could see the oats and the beans and the, you could see it looked like, like the food just mushed up into a burger and it tasted great. Now it's, everyone's got an impossible burger. 
And so we're missing out on that. The other thing, though, that we do need to think about is the environment, as California is burning right now and all this stuff going on. And that's where I think these plant-based alternatives do have an important uh, benefit, provided they're sourcing their oils, not from uh, palm oil and stuff like that. But I think the the companies have been pretty innovative in that regard. That's fair. And I'll segue to oils. Like for the record, what are some of your olive oil? We know that we go through the olive oil, coconut oil, avocado. We can talk through all the oils. Then we got the seed oils, the vegetable oils. Like where do you stand on oils? Yeah, it's so funny. In the vegan community, like the vegan community is falling apart. I mean, it is just <laughs> falling apart. But the, and the reason is this like unbelievable infighting amongst the vegans. I mean, they're debating each other about every little thing. Meanwhile, they should easily be debating other people rather than themselves. But oil is a big one, man. They go crazy. There was a fight in the vegan community. You guys don't know what happens in the vegan community. It's kind of a small community. There was a fight like you would not believe over olive oil. It got really nasty online. People, I'm like, people are screaming at each other over olive oil. I'm like dipping my bread in olive oil as I read, as I'm reading the, the social media things. It would be, you would be very hard pressed to say olive oil is bad for you. There was one study a long time ago that one of the kind of gurus of veganism kind of jumped on, and that was looking at flow mediated dilation in the arteries. So, one good way of looking at, uh, you can't really study the endothelium very well, but you can look at nitric oxide effects and really the real world effect of it, which is to put a blood pressure cup on your arm, to squeeze it, and then to let it go and to see how fast your your vessels dilate. And they we've tested all kinds of foods with flow media dilation. We know that meat's terrible flow media dilation, things like that. But they found that olive oil did the same thing that meat was doing with flow media dilation. Now, this was a study many years ago. It's been repeated, didn't have the same effects. Again, going back to these Mediterranean and these the these blue zones, they're eating tons of olive oil. Now, could you say that, like I said, they're not trying to live long. Could we live longer than them by avoiding olive oil? There's no evidence to suggest that is true. There's just zero evidence to suggest that is true. Olive oil have got really good catechins in it. Davidson, I heard from David Sinclair recently that it can actually stimulate NAD production, which is, I didn't know that, which is really fascinating because NAD may be the end-all be-all of aging, at least in a lab setting. We don't know that in person, but in a lab setting. So, I think olive oil is fine. There are times where I tell people to limit it, though, because oils are extraordinarily calorie dense. And I do a lot when I'm when I'm dealing with an obese patient with calorie density. And when you're trying to deal with calorie density and trying when I've got a patient and I'm trying to get trying to get them in calorie balance or a little bit of calorie deficit, I'm looking to cut calories anywhere I can. And oils are going to be one of them. And so that's another place. That's a place where I kind of the other thing is I really don't like a lot of cooking with oils. What my worry with oils becomes smoke points, boiling points and uh, the chance of oxidizing oils. Because we know that it's oxidized fats that really cause a problem. And so while I do eat olive oil, I, I my wife and I cook very little with oil. Like when we're cooking with oil, it's a drop if that and it's funny because you look at a Pam cooking spray. You ever got a Pam? It's amazing because that Pam cooking spray on it, it says no fat, low calorie, and it's oil. So how does it do that? 
Have you ever looked at this on a pan cooking spray? The in the direction in the, the serving size is a quarter of a second of a spray. <laughs> Which absurd, like why don't they just make it like one spray a quarter of a second? So a quarter of a second of spray. But most people say, oh, no fat, no, and they spray their whole pan. And a lot of times when people are, you know, I've tried calorie counting with patients a lot, and that just never works. But part of the reason is. When you're doing calorie counts and you're whatever you're counting, you're not counting the oil you use to cook with, uh, and that's a big calorie addition to it too. So to bring it full circle, in the context of COVID, we've talked about obesity, weight loss, protein. We know that there's a connection with the ability to successfully fight you know this terrible virus if, if you you're in great metabolic health and unfortunately only 12 percent of americans have great metabolic health like what do you what's your take on all of this what, what are you seeing what's interesting to you with regard to this conversation what do you want us to learn what, what do you want us to go from here yeah it's a it's kind of a bit of a wake-up call isn't it Provided you're not a conspiracy theorist who thinks this is a Bill Gates invented, I, the things I hear online lately just blow my mind. But but yeah, the, I think this is the first time that we've seen that obesity in and of itself. It, well, we've known for a while it's a precursor to cancer and heart disease, but it's really becoming alive in this kind of idea. I've got I'm busy as I've ever been in the office. People coming in because people now realize that their weight there's almost a anti-fat shaming. There's this movement. Let's be comfortable with our weight. It's not that bad, but let's be comfortable. It's okay to be. And look, I'm all, I'm all about people. The worst thing in the world is fat shaming. I'm all about people being comfortable in their bodies, but you got to understand that being overweight for many people means being in a state of inflammation and being in a disease state where you're susceptible to many of our leading diseases uh, and newer diseases. But it goes even beyond that because we've got to start looking at so many different things. Being overweight predisposes us to being sick, but we're also getting sick from the foods we eat and the foods we eat are producing these zoonotic diseases. We don't have zoonotic diseases if we don't have factory farming and wet and wet markets. We just don't have them. If we're eating a predominantly plant-based diet, you're not going to get that. I mean, there, there was an outbreak last year of E. coli in romaine lettuce. Romaine lettuce doesn't have a GI system. E. coli is a GI bug. So where does that come from? It comes from the factory farms in the vicinities. We have to start realizing that where we source our food is a huge part of the diseases that we're going to see in the future. And I've been waiting for this pandemic for a long time. I, I thought we were get, going to get to it before. Um, I knew about these pandemics. We were studying them back in medical school. I thought we were going to have a, a, a pandemic way before this, the way we stack animals in, in by the bill. We, we, we feed 60 billion animals a year to feed a population of 7 billion. And to fit 60 billion animals into this world, you got to put them in some close quarters. And you put them in the close quarters, you're going to get these diseases. So I think COVID has been a wake-up call for that. And it's been a wake-up call for how we get healthy. The one thing I, I would add to that, though, because your population uh, in the Mind, Body, Green movement is very interested in the supplements we take in order to, to stay healthy. And I want to caution people against that. Like, I'm seeing these guys online taking 
first you've got to take elderberry extract and after you take elderberry extract you got to add some zinc to that and i don't these guys must be popping pills all day long but you don't have to do that you just have to eat healthy foods with healthy coloring to them we know um, that blueberries are protective yes we know elderberries are protective but you don't have to take an elderberry concentrate to do that. We know that eating a plant-based diet and, and phytochemicals and anthocyanins are going to be great for your immune system. Uh, and so long as you're doing those things, you'll be healthy and you don't need to take all these different supplements. Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That guy was brilliant when he said Michael that. Pollan, I mean, he's still ha he's Michael, still nailed it to this day. I mean, I study the science of food like crazy into the micro molecular genetic structure. But when people like you ask me, well, what's your philosophy in the end? I got to go back to eat real food, mostly plants, not too much. So last question, any interesting science studies you're, you're paying attention to that you think are interesting to watch in 2021 and beyond? Yeah, I, look, I was very fascinated by Hall and his colleagues at NIH because we needed an, a head-to-head -head trial with ketosis versus a plant-based diet because everybody was speculating. And so I couldn't wait for this trial. So they took uh, 40 people into a hospital, two weeks on a plant-based diet, two weeks on a ketosis diet. They didn't lose any fat on the ketosis diet. The only thing they lost was water and muscle. They lost fat on the plant-based diet, no fat loss on the ketosis diet. Ketosis diet, they became, they had higher LDL. Now, they did get better large particle LDL, but that doesn't matter. That's a whole other story. They became more insulin resistant. So the, the fact that in two weeks, they created almost, almost a diabetic patient doing a ketosis type diet. Their A1C wasn't elevated, their sugars weren't elevated, but their insulin resistance was high. They just weren't eating any carbs. I thought that randomized controlled trial was fascinating, and I think we need to do more trials like that. The next question is, can we do some long-term trials? There just are not a lot of long-term head-to-head trials. There was a long-term head-to-head low-fat versus low-carb trial. That was a year that didn't show much difference between the two. But I think what people are really interested in is not a little bit of low-fat versus a little bit low-carb, but interested in the extremes. Like now there's the carnivore movement, which to me is perplexing. There's zero science to support it, but there's zero science to refute it. There's just zero science. So what I want to see is more head-to-head -head trials. Head-to-head -head trials on healthy diets. The thing that we've done wrong in the past, I think, is we've said, okay, this person's on a low-fat diet, but they're on a crappy low-fat diet, right? They're eating snack wells and Oreos. But now there's people that are eating a carnivore diet, but they are eating the best type meat that they could possibly find. And there's people in the ketosis diet that are eating vegetables uh, and are actually eating a healthy ketosis diet. And there's vegans, they eat absolute crap, but there's people like me that eat a whole food plant-based diet. Let's take these extremes and put them in head-to-head -head trials. That's what I wanna see in the future. I think there is interest in the future in some of this anti-aging stuff. I think the anti-aging will start crossing over into the disease. So looking at the stuff Sinclair's looking at NAD levels and mitochondrial function and, and things like that. Right now, he's studying that on longevity scale. That may have applications in diabetes and obesity in the future. Uh, and so looking at that kind of stuff, I think will be interesting. But I think the answer is always going to be the same. Uh, eat mostly plants, not too much. Amen. We'll close there. Yeah. Garth, thank you so much. Pleasure no, to have thank you. Giving me the opportunity. No problem.